are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. I am thrilled we have Dr. Javier Ballester joining us tonight, and we are talking about the emerging trend of methamphetamine and fentanyl use. We have got so much to talk about. We are talking about a little bit about the epidemiology, some of the special populations that you will see this use in, and some of the emerging treatments. Paula's going to introduce Dr. Ballister. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm delighted to be able to introduce Dr. Ballister. He's a special friend and an amazing scientist and practitioner here in Salt Lake City. We're so lucky to have him. And we're so grateful to have him on the show. And you will all be benefiting from his knowledge. So delighted to have you. Thank you so much, Javier. So he was born in Spain in a little town in the north called Zamora, but he grew up in the middle part of Spain in another small town called, I'm going to, maybe I'll say this wrong, Ciudad Real. Did I do it okay? Perfect. Okay. <laughs> when he was 18 years old, Javier moved to Madrid, where he completed his medical school and his residency in psychiatry. After that, he got a scholarship from a foundation called Koplovich and spent three years in Pittsburgh studying child and adolescent psychiatry. I didn't know that about you. He decided to stay here in the USA, despite knowing that he would need to repeat his residency. Oh, ouch. He spent one year in Brooklyn for his internship and then moved to Connecticut, where he completed his residency in psychiatry at Yale and then an addiction psychiatry fellowship. He moved to Salt Lake City to work at the University of Utah and became board certified in addiction medicine and finally transitioned to the VA healthcare system, where he currently works as an outpatient psychiatrist. He is the current president of the Utah chapter of the of ASAM, sorry, and belongs to the Science Initiative Subcommittee of ASAM. His current interests include neuromodulation techniques techniques for the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder and neuroimaging in addiction. And we just want to say that the opinions of Dr. Ballester are his own and do not reflect those of his current employer, the Veterans Affairs Administration. So welcome, Dr. Ballester. We're very excited. We have so many things to talk about. We might keep you here for five hours, but instead, I think we'll just invite you back again. Thank you very much. And the pleasure is really mine. Thank you for inviting me. I am a huge fan of your podcast. It's great. All uh, what you are doing, uh, what you are creating, I think it's fabulous for uh, general practitioners, for even people with more background on addiction. I, I enjoy listening to your podcast every time that I'm driving to work back and forth. It's really a pleasure. I was hoping that you will invite me one of these days. So <laughs> You should have invited yourself. Well, let's get talking because you have you gave an amazing presentation at a recent national conference, the Addictions Update. And that's where I read your synopsis. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, we have to have this on the podcast. And of course, we wanted you on the podcast before that, but this topic particularly. Tell us everything you know, and that's not going to be enough time, but let's just dive in. First of all, I wanted to uh, describe how I have become more interested on this topic. And I'm talking more specifically about the comorbidity or happening together of opioid use disorder and methamphetamine use disorder, and specifically more fentanyl and methamphetamine use. So when I did my uh, fellowship in the Northeast, I barely saw any patient with methamphetamine use. I remember I only met 
one patient during the whole fellowship. And this is funny because this patient was actually coming from California. That was the only patient that I met at that time. I think things are different now, but at that time, the only patient with a methamphetamine use disorder. And these, this panorama changed completely when I moved here. And I started to see in my clinical this initially at the university and now at the VA that more and more patients in my clinic are showing up and are using both methamphetamine and fentanyl. You know, it's something that I have become interested because uh, it is very challenging and it's scary for any of us. And I think that we cannot hide the reality and we need to face this uh, monster with two heads that we have now. You know, I started to uh, do a little bit of research and I realized uh, based on all of the studies that I have been publishing on epidemiological data, places like the CDC, how there has been increase in the concomitant use of fentanyl and methamphetamine here in the West, or more specifically, uh, opioids and stimulants in general in the whole country. Some people, um, I think everybody is aware of our tragic statistics that we reached last year, more than 100,000 deaths on overdoses. And this year, I think the expectations is that we are already going to surpass that number. You know, it's very important to, for us to know that many of these um, overdoses deaths are being driven not only by the opioids, but also by stimulant co-use. People have described what they call the waves in the opioid, national opioid epidemic crisis. So the first wave was mainly driven by opioids and painkillers, specifically more <laughs> prescription opioids, and how people were starting to become addicted to different opioids. Epidemiology experts describe as the first wave. Then we faced the second wave, which is uh, once uh, people started to have more difficulties accessing these opioids, they, they transitioned to cheaper opioids, more specifically heroin. That is, and you can see that in the same way that we have waves in the COVID epidemic for the past uh, two, more than two years, we also have waves that you can see in charts what's going on with the um, overdoses. So the second wave was driven by heroin. Then um, something interesting happened, and it is that people started to gain more access, some easier access to synthetic opioids, specifically fentanyl. And that's what is described as the third wave. More and more deaths were being found driven fentanyl, which you probably have heard in past episodes that is a very potent opioid probably more than 100 times more potent than heroin. That is what people are using us to describe as a third wave. But now we are facing with what we call the fourth wave, co-occurrence, what we have described of stimulants and opioids. The stimulant-driven deaths are different. In the East Coast, it's mainly, but not only, cocaine. And in the West Coast, and Middle West, including Utah, is driven uh, mainly, but not only, by methamphetamine use. That's an interesting question, and we don't know. We, we don't have the answer of why this is happening, but we have some clues. One of the reasons is that, as also Dr. Cook described in a past episode, uh, that people have easier access to methamphetamine, and methamphetamine is now cheaper, purer than ever before. It's a very cheap drug. You can find it easily, and it's very potent now. Why is it used at the same time than opioids? Uh, that's an, an interesting question. There have There is some people who have tried to find answers to that. It's a study where people were asking people who are using drugs, you know, what is the reasons? One of them, I'm talking about a qualitative study done in 
2018 by an author called Eli. It was based on surveys. And this study was done in patients who were seeking treatment for opioid use disorder in an opioid treatment, in different opioid treatment programs across the nation. This is a, a study done in more than 10,000 people between 2011 and 2007. And among the different reasons that people described, there were two reasons that people, that they found that people were using methamphetamine for. One of them, and this is not surprising, is to, they were looking for higher effects. So what they call a synergistic effect. They were trying to get, in other words, um, more high, higher with a combination of both drugs. So kind of like a hedonic reason. That would be one. However, what I was very also surprised to find out in this study is that people were also using it together to diminish the side effects of the opioids. And in other words, to function better socially. When people are using opioids, they have side effects, obviously, and everybody knows the side effects, but mainly sedation and difficulties functioning in social settings, in work. You know, I say all the time, people who are using drugs are the same people as you and I, and they want to be able to function socially. They are using methamphetamine as a way to try to uh, counter uh, act the effects of the opioids. So they want to be more alert. They want to be able to function and produce more. I totally agree. That interesting. And I find that's true. When you ask your patients, they say the same thing. And it can be a matter of survival for some people, like especially folks who are experiencing homelessness. I've had them tell me, if I don't use meth while I'm using heroin, I can't stay awake to protect myself. Otherwise, I'll be robbed, beaten up. Everything will be taken from me if I'm just nodded out, passed out. And as ironic as that is, they use methamphetamine to stay as part of the culture on the streets and also to stay awake and alert to protect themselves. Exactly. Going back a little bit about, about the epidemiology, uh, you can see that another NIH study back in 2018, they found that out of 45,000 opioid deaths at that time, and numbers are so different compared to the ones that we that we have now, 35% opioid deaths were involving, where at the same time there was a stimulant happening. That is 35%, I'm sorry, and that is different than the 15% in 2008. Just in years, the numbers have duplicated. The same happens for people who die uh, with an overdose from a stimulant. There were more than 25,000 stimulant deaths in 2018. Out of these deaths, um, 60% were involved in opioid, which is different than the 35% in 2008. There is another study done in 2019, um, and what they show that people who were entering opioid treatment programs, and these are places where people go for the treatment of opioid use disorder, the past month use of methamphetamine had increased from 8% in 2012 to 21% in 2018. And there is a more recent study that I also find very interesting, uh, uh, again by Eli in 2022. This is data from more than 6,000 people with opioid use disorder. People who, uh, this is also study done in uh, opioid treatment programs. They found that the time of the mean years of transitioning from first opioid to first stimulant use in 1991 to 1995, it used to be approximately four years. Among these people who were who use both, the data from the past four years between 2016 and 2020, the average time of years between the first opioid use to the first stimulant use was 0.4 years. The same thing happened 
the main years between the first stimulant to the first opioid use, 0.3 years. It used to be 7.4 years in 1995, and now it's barely just a few months before one starts to use another. So they both are linked so tightly that we can already start to assume that if someone is having an opioid use disorder, is there are high chances that they are also going to have stimulant use disorder. Wow, that's distressing. Those are distressing statistics. And it seems that way, like working clinically, it's like even it seems to be higher than 21%, like those people entering the methadone program. In the methadone program I work with, it seems to be almost global. Yeah, we're definitely seeing it. So yeah, I would agree. Right. If we use the, the more um, rigid, classic way of treating addiction back in the 80s and the 90s, you know, they used to say, you know, you can, if, you are, if, you're, if you are positive, if, if your urine is positive for another drug, you are going to be discharged from the program because um, uh, we cannot treat you because you are using another drug. If we do that now, we will be losing more probably than 50% of the population that we are treating. The reality, and some people call that harm reduction, but to me, it's not even harm reduction any longer. It's purely treatment at this point. You just have to treat and accept the reality that people are using combined substances. That is almost happening now more often than not. In my opinion, if you're just going to be treating people who are only using one drug, you know, you are going to have a, a very important selection bias. And honestly, you need to question yourself and even consider if this is ethically the right thing in the same way that. But I would say, am I going to treat diabetes on people whose um, hemoglobin A1C is 6.5 to 7, but not long, but no higher than 8? Of course, it's not. And if you feel uncomfortable doing that, then you need to question if this is the right place for you. Because uh, I think that accepting the reality is the first step. And it also helps us to be less anxious, accepting that this is happening. That doesn't mean that I am, I am not endorsing people using drugs. I'm just accepting the reality and trying to treat it the way the way that the reality is showing that is happening. Oh, mic drop. I mean, we can't say anything better than that. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the most recent guidelines from SAMHSA, that is, uh, they, they have, they publish every year, uh, well, I'm sorry, not every year, every few years, they update it. They have something that they call treatment improvement protocols or TIP. And this is resources that are uh, for free because it's SAMHSA is a public organization. Uh, you can download it for free. The most recent one, it was updated in 2021, so last year, Treatment for Stimulant Use Disorder, TIP 33. And they are very clear when they wrote that, saying, if you have someone is um, uh, suffering from comorbid opioid use disorder and stimulant use disorder, the recommendations for treatment is do not stop the treatment for opioid use disorder. Continue the treatment, whatever it is, with buprenorphine, methadone, or naltrexone long acting, you have to continue. If anything, what you need to do is increase the services if it is possible. This is just a reflection that people need more service, not less. You should not discharge people who are using more than one drug. The other recommendation, and this is from SAMHSA, this is not from myself, is adding contingency management or other psychosocial treatments, because that's, like you said, Paula, in one past episode, is the treatment that has so far proven must be more effective for people with stimulant use disorder. And they also recommend, and this is interesting for people working in opioid treatment programs, closer cardiac monitoring. Because if you are using methadone and you are using a stimulant, we know of the deleterious and dangerous effects of stimulants in the cardiovascular health, it's recommended 
closer cardiac monitoring. And finally, uh, what they recommend is, and again, and this is something I know myself, is adding harm reduction strategies and services, which includes using fentanyl strips. So people who are using drugs can see what they are using and probably avoiding fatal overdose from fentanyl. Of course, providing naloxone packages and naloxone kits to people. But I think that it's also, it has been proven more than once that uh, exchange syringe and even a more, uh, the most recent opening centers, at least in New York, of uh, safe consumption sites or overdose reduction sites. But the most recent centers opened, at least so far in United States, only in New York, uh, there are two centers and they are having people staff who are knowledgeable and who know how to act and know what to do when there is an overdose. And, you know, the question that I have for everyone is, if we know that these centers work, if we know that they save lives, the question is, is it ethical to still have problems opening centers? I just going to let this question there. And so people can think we now have uh, something that we know is going to save lives. So why don't we open more? It's a very good question. <laughs> and they have a significant cost savings. I know we talked about this in the harm reduction episode that there are an underground sites running in San Francisco, but then we're, we're talking in the millions of dollars of cost savings by reversing overdoses. So, I mean, we have two arguments. It's not just lives. You can't put a price on, you can never put a price on that, but the amount of lives saved, but then just cost savings alone, when you're talking to legislators about this, there's some really interesting news articles out there about this. It's a really fascinating. We'll put that question out there for people to think about. And we also had Dr. David Sirota on the show two weeks ago. And, you know, he was talking about prevention of infectious diseases. And methamphetamine particularly is difficult on the veins. It causes venous sclerosis. It blows the veins up and people are much more likely to get cellulitis and soft tissue infections with the injection of methamphetamine than they are even with heroin, even though heroin can be contaminated and give you infections as well. But that's the other thing is these harm reduction methods hopefully reduce infectious disease transmission, skin and soft tissue infections, and HIV and hep C transmission. Yeah, and I think that is important for people to understand that harm reduction doesn't mean endorsing drugs. The goals of harm reductions are not promoting drugs and facilitating people using drugs. That's not the goals. Harm reduction's goals is also sobriety, but it's also, that's the difference, which I think that is more humane, is also accepting the reality that not everybody is ready in their life for whatever reason based on the severity of their disease not everybody's ready to achieve sobriety so accepting that reality is what harm reduction is trying to implement and you can see many of these harm reduction places that they offer counseling they offer in referral for services you know if we are lucky they even have they might even have services for treatment of infectious uh, diseases but the funny thing is that it's not it has not only been proven to be efficient from a economical perspective for society but it has also being proven that it decreases and not increases but decreases the criminal activity. So if you want to have cities that are safer, you need to have more harm reduction, safe injection sites. Mostly data from uh, Canada who are way, way farther ahead of us in harm reduction services and some places in Europe where we can also see that they are more advanced than here in the United States in harm reduction services. And there has been research and there has been papers out there. So it's a 
available and people need to know these. Agreed. So Javier, talk to us a little bit about the populations who are most vulnerable in terms of methamphetamine and fentanyl use or methamphetamine use, like minority populations, LGBTQ populations. Tell us a little bit more about that. This is very interesting because when we get statistics in general from the CDC, from NIH, uh, we normally get these general statistics, right? But behind the numbers are our faces and there are humans and families there. So when you get a little, the microscope, the social microscope, and start to get a little bit more detailed about how this is affecting different populations, you then learn, which is something that I didn't know before, but it's something that I learned, how we are talking about methamphetamine use disorder, how the overdose deaths different ethnic minorities. There is actually uh, an interesting graph from NIH that shows that there used to be already some differences back in 2011 about the overdose deaths involving methamphetamine. This is in people between 25 and 54 years old. Per 100,000 people, 4.5 people uh, were American Indian or Alaska Native uh, population, and 1.7 people were white, non-Hispanic population. And the average in the United States at that time was 7.3 people dying per 100,000 dying from an overdose involving methamphetamine. Now, if we fast forward to 2018, which is the last data that I found, then number of uh, people who died way, way uh, more disproportionate. Almost 21 people were American Indian Alaska Native population versus 9.4 white. So this is more than double people. So this is per 100,000. This is make me think, why is that? Why are there more Alaska or Native American population dying from methamphetamine overdose compared to other ethnic minorities? I don't know the answer to that. I have my own hypothesis. I believe that is, of course, as usual geographical availability or where they live. But I think that it's also very important to to highlight that these populations have huge percentage of trauma compared to uh, other type of ethnic minorities, including white uh, populations. My my hypothesis is that the trauma, because of PTSD, but also intergenerational trauma, systemic racism, and other disproportionate differences, I think are also powerful drivers of this difference on death. This is important to know because if we don't take care of the these other psychosocial factors, we are not going to be achieving the same equity in the uh, in the treatment different people. There is not only that, um, you, we know, especially in the stimulants, we know uh, what happened in our African-American population, how different this population has been affected when we, uh, if we talk about cocaine, how different it's been crack and regular white powder cocaine. I think this is just a very brief perspective. But in the 1980s and 1990s, we had this war on drugs, which I believe that it still may be happening. What happened is that they approved a law that those population who were in ownership on possession or trafficking of crack cocaine had several higher penalty rates than the white powder. So surprise, and we are talking about the same drug. We are talking about cocaine. We are just talking about different formulations 
situation. There was a law, if you were caught with crack cocaine, your sentence was more severe than if you were caught with white powder cocaine. There is a study done in 2015 that found out that disparity between the crack and powder cocaine was 18 to 1. In other words, 19 people arrested by a stimulant with a stimulant use disorder using cocaine. I'm, I'm talking, if you are in possession of crack cocaine, you will have 18 times higher chances of being incarcerated versus if you have white powder cocaine. So uh, this is ridiculous. We are talking about the same drug. We are not even talking about different drugs at this point. So this is something that they, they wrote also on the SAMHSA guidelines that how this has contributed to the Black or African-American experiences of historical trauma, right? Race bias and discrimination and a general mistrust of the system with also mention what's going on uh, with methamphetamine in particular in special populations including LGBTQ plus uh, minority. I wanted to um, you know talk about one concept that I think is important for people to know is called chemsex and that is um, the use of uh, drugs or chemical substances to have better sexual experiences. This is not new. <laughs> this is not new in, in, uh, in our history. And this is not only, of course, in LGBTQ plus population, but it's also in many other populations. And, and if you think about it very um, strict in the definition, can sex should also include alcohol? How many people have haven't had sex in the context of being intoxicated with alcohol? So it cannot be hypo, uh, hypocrites and understand that chem sex is more spread than what we think it is. That's a very good point. Very good point. Spe specifically more in men who have sex with. There has been some research by an author called Anderson Carpenter in 2019 published a paper that showed that uh, there was a huge prevalence of methamphetamine use and we are not talking about methamphetamine use disorder. We are talking about past, I don't remember if it was past month or past year methamphetamine use. Probably past year because the percentage is quite high. In men who have sex with men, it was between 21 to 27 percent. Specifically in this population, the use of methamphetamine is way more probably spread than in other uh, populations. So you might ask, why is that? Why do you have more methamphetamine use in this population? And I think probably uh, also, I'm going to go back again to the same, but a lot of psychosocial reasons. Why is that? Well, I think that imagine that you grow up as a gay person, being unable to express your emotions, learning that any time that you express something is wrong and is a sin or is should, it should be punished. So what happens is that you develop problems connected to people in your in your formative years when you are a kid it's very important those relationships that you create not only with your family but also with your friends and school if that is affected in your formative and your most important developmental years you are going to have a lot of problems or probably more problems than the normal pop than the other population connecting to others a lot of this population uh, use drugs in general to to be able to connect better because many of them, we could say, have not developed the right tools for that and they don't know how to relate to others. And there is also a lot of shame and a lot of fear. And having a sexual gay relationship can be scary for many people because it also involves uh, accepting a reality that a lot of people don't want to accept. So I think that that can explain a lot of the reasons why it's probably more uh, spread, chemsex and parties using drugs in general within this 
Chinese population. Wow, thank you for explaining that. I've never really, I've never heard it explained that way, and it makes so much sense. It comes from a very kind of psychoanalytical viewpoint. <laughs> right, I love well, that. It's- I think that uh, is very important to focus a little bit too in this population because that because of the public, there's been public campaigns mostly in California, specifically more in sites like San Francisco, trying to um, address uh, this problem in this population where methamphetamine use and other other drugs and the use of chemsex has affected tremendously this population. It's important to notice that there has been change, kind of like a migration in the type of substances that people use on chemsex. So it used to be historically more cannabis, cocaine, ecstasy. That was the drugs that were used more often in, in this population. And that has migrated more recently to other substances such as methamphetamine, but also ketamine, nitrates, and GHB. So these are substances that people use to have uh, chemsex. And in this population, it's very important to address. Okay, sorry, I'm going to have you repeat those again, but slower. Because I think that's really a very important list. And it's extensive. I I personally have been seeing a lot more people abusing ketamine lately in in relation to chemsex, but also just in general. But can you repeat that list again, maybe if not just for my own brain, but for our listeners as well? Of course. So and historically, and I'm talking more about the 80s and the 90s, used to be drugs such as cannabis, marijuana, cocaine, and ecstasy. Ecstasy, which is a, a drug that facilitates, it's called an empathogen, because it facilitates the contact and the social interactions. Those are the ones, and those are the drugs that were more available back in the 80s and the 90s. However, these drugs have now transitioned, and for the past 10 years, maybe more 15 years, there has been other drugs that are, are being used more widely. The list now includes more methamphetamine, which, which is what we are talking here today, but also nitrate. So this these are uh, substances like uh, they can found it in the street name is poppers and they can find it and this is a drug that is a vasodilator it is it improves the, the perfusion it improves the, the availability of drugs going to the brain but also it relaxes some of the sphincters so um, poppers is one of the of the onitrates is one of the drugs and by the way I wanted to say this because it's very important if someone uses poppers please be very careful and do not use Viagra combined because uh, Viagra is a vasodilator too and there can be dangerous combinations in the use of both nitrates so things like hoppers and and Viagra. So I talk about methamphetamine I talk about nitrates but I also uh, wanted to mention ketamine which is a dissociative compound and um, it's also being used in chemsex which is interesting for me how do you how why do you use a dissociative in those uh, experiences but that would be more that might be maybe a psychological reason for that and this is the one that can actually, among the list that I have given you, GHB is the one that can kill people right away and can put people in coma right away. So this is um, um, a product which is GABA agonist. So it's almost like GABA in liquid form. This is a compound that people take, that people drink. You have to be very careful. And actually what they do is measuring. They have pipettes to measure the amount of GHB that you can use, in, that you need to dissolve in water uh, or in a different drink. It's very different. It's very dangerous because there is no acetylene effect. In other words, you can completely overdose and die. Same thing with opioids or GHB. There is a lot of instances of people dying parties in saunas and and in places because they have used GHB in an uncontrolled way and they overdose, they have a respiratory arrest and they die. Wow, thank you. That's that's really interesting. 
I have a couple of questions. Can you talk to us about meth psychosis <laughs> and some of the, how do you differentiate it from an organic psychiatric condition and then treatment options? What is the best things? What should we avoid? And then I really want to get to some of the emerging treatments for methamphetamine use disorder. I know that you are doing some research. Okay. So as a psychiatrist, I'm very interested on this topic, you know, the differentiation between uh, methamphetamine-induced psychosis and, let's say, more um, primary psychotic disorders. So I think that the first thing uh, would be that when someone to know is that when someone is acutely intoxicated with uh, amphetamine, unless you pay attention to, to some autonomic responses such as high heart rate, high blood pressure, mitriasis, or um, you know some things that uh, that you wouldn't have in primary psychotic disorders. Unless you really pay attention to that, the presentation might be indistinguishable from acute mania or from even an acute psychotic episode, depending what is the degree. If there is more psychomotor activation or if there is more psychosis and more effects in cognition and in perceptions or in or on a speech. Those are the three domains that in primary psychotic disorders we pay attention to. It will be perceptions, and that includes hallucinations, and it will be thought disorders, so that will be delus uh, delusional content, uh, paranoia, but it could also be some thought problems such as uh, that you might not be able to catch at first when you meet someone, but this affects executive functions and affects in even in some of the visual spatial abilities and many other abilities that are more primarily related to primary psychotic disorders. But not only, I talk about effects in perceptions, effects in, in thoughts, and, and effects in cognition. Uh, so an acute, uh, an acute episode of methamphetamine intoxication might be completely almost impossible to differentiate between that and a primary psychotic disorder. This is important because uh, we need to know that people who uh, have a methamphetamine use disorder might be more vulnerable to side effects of some of the medications that we might use for primary psychotic disorders. So, you know, the treatment of choice normally, and Dr. Cook explained that in the past, for someone with suffering from an acute intoxication of methamphetamine is normally isolation, you know, environment isolation and conservative measures. Um, we might need to even make sure that there is good hydration. And, but even if we need to use antihypertensives or mainly benzodiazepines are good choices for people with but sometimes this is not enough. Sometimes the behavioral problems are so marked and the psychotic effects that people are suffering are so pronounced that you need to use an antipsychotic, at least to, to try to, to help with sedation with some form of um, calming effect in the behavior too. People with methamphetamine use disorder, and that can be related to the, the huge dopaminergic effects that, the, that this drug has, and probably some of the neurotoxic effects in the neurons. But people with methamphetamine use disorder are more sensitive to what we call extrapyramidal symptoms, which is side effects from these medications, which includes um, dystonias, it includes problems with movement, such as akathisia, or it includes uh, Parkinsonism. People with methamphetamine use disorder might be more predisposed to have injection with any stimulant use disorder. And the general recommendation is usually try to avoid these first generation antipsychotics that are more potent or powerful in the dopaminergic systems. I'm talking more about D2, a dopaminergic receptor blockage, which is one of the ways that they work. And it is recommended to instead using atypical antipsychotics. 
within atypical antipsychotics, we have a lot of medication. So there is more typical within the atypical ones, such as risperidone, risperidone sorry, I didn't want to say a commercial name, so risperidone uh, or paliperidone, they are more um, uh, incisive, but there is other ones that are more sedative. Uh, typically, these medications, the more sedative they are, the less effects they have in dopamine D2 receptors blocked. So things like olanzapine or quetiapine are probably preferred for the management of in this population. So not only in acute states, because you probably are, uh, it's, it's hard, it can happen, but it, but you might not harm someone that you are using only one, a couple of doses of an antipsychotic. But if someone needs to be uh, taking an antipsychotic in the long term, it is preferred less powerful D2 blockage antipsychotics, such as quetiapine or, um, or olanzapine. There is another one called aripiprazole, and this is important to know because that some reports, and this is only case reports, this has not been studied deeply, but of course, because we don't have a lot of data, even if we have a case report, we are going to be paying attention a lot to this. Aripiprazole was found that could even worsen craving on people with methamphetamine use disorder. It's an interesting antipsychotic because it can also have some activating effects. And I have seen sometimes people having strange reactions manifest more in the form of akathisia when using this medication. Uh, that, doesn't say, that doesn't mean, that, I mean, I like it, I use it for some people, but but in, in this population, it will be something that I will try to avoid, as is, if I have if I can choose. There was a recent, uh, I mean, it's a it's a good paper, but it's a low quality review because we don't have a lot of studies out there. I think there are only six, seven studies published comparing one antipsychotic versus another one, and. There was, so there are very few. It was published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence in 2021. And they found that olanzapine seemed to have more efficacy actually on the main and positive symptoms compared to the other ones. So positive symptoms include hallucinations, delusions. Um, olanzapine seemed to have a little bit more, but this is just almost something that I wouldn't pay too much attention, but I, but because between that and between the uh, possible motor effects of these medications, that's why I'm recommending to use these medications to treat methamphetamine-induced psychosis. And you mentioned, Darlene, um, you had a very interesting question, almost a $1 million question, which is, what is the difference between chronic, so methamphetamine-induced psychosis and primary psychotic disorder, uh, more specifically schizophrenia? So the DSM-5 is, uh, or distinguish substance-induced psychosis as as a psychosis that should resolve within the first month of discontinuing offending agent. In theory, you, you can imagine, um, and, the, and of course, the drug or the substance, the theoretical way that the, that the drug can, needs to explain that it's possible to have that effect. In other words, you cannot have mania on people using an opioid, so you need to have a physiological explanation of the behavior that the patient is presenting. But there is an important temporal criteria, which is the resolution of the symptoms within the first month. You see that in general with many drugs. You see that in people who are admitted in patient psychiatric units for the management of acute psychotic episodes. But however, uh, what I can see in methamphetamine is different than in other drugs. I am finding more and more often people whose psychotic symptoms continue months and months after the end of drug offending. So how do you call that? Is that a methamphetamine-induced psychosis? Well, technically it's not because it's, it's lasting longer than the one-month criterion. So how do we call that? I call that perhaps methamphetamine-triggered psychosis. So some people say, you know, 
Well, you have to have certain predisposition, some biological vulnerability to develop psychosis. And so those people, that's the two-hit hypothesis that was explained, you know, classic psychiatry, the two-hit hypothesis of schizophrenia talks about people who are biologically predisposed to develop schizophrenia, but then they also have an insult on top of that. And you require both to develop the problem. And by insult, I mean an environmental insult. It could be, and it could be adverse childhood experiences, and it could be marginalization or poverty, trauma, or it could be even the exposure to some teratogens, uh, some viruses. So there is a lot of research done there about what is the cause of schizophrenia. So that's a two-hit hypothesis. So some people say, according to this hypothesis, that if you develop psychosis that is lasting longer than it should expect it by the use of any drug, that means that you are predisposed to have this. So you had an underlying primary psychotic disorder that it got unmasked by the use of the drug, maybe because of changes, uh, maybe because of epigenetics, maybe because of whatever happened in your neurons, whatever happened in your circuits, something changed. You know, I am not so convinced that this is the case in uh, methamphetamine. I think that methamphetamine is having some ability to create psychosis per se, and not only in an acute episode, but even predisposing people to have irreversible changes in their brain that, that explains that they will be suffering from psychotic symptoms, perhaps for a long time, many years, even after the cessation of the drug. We don't know how to name the condition that these people are, are dealing with. We don't know if this is a primary psychotic disorder or if it's a methamphetamine-triggered psychosis or if it's a methamphetamine-induced psychosis or, or what is it. But the reality is that I have seen several patients who continue suffering from uh, psychotic symptoms after the cessation of methamphetamine use, months and months, even years after they stop using methamphetamine. There is some clues out there that might to differentiate uh, if someone has a methamphetamine-related psychosis versus a primary schizophrenia. An interesting one is that the hallucinations, people suffer from hallucinations, typically auditory are the most common ones. So if people have suffer from auditory hallucinations, hallucinations, people with methamphetamine-induced psychosis tend to have a more severe form of these hallucinations compared to schizophrenia. So they can, they, it's more intense. They can hear more. I'm getting this data from another uh, review published in a journal called Frontiers in Psychiatry in 2018. And they try to do an analysis of all of the different published studies to see what is phenomenologically, what is the difference between one and the other. So, so they came to the conclusion that it seems that hallucinations tend to be more severe in chronic methamphetamine psychosis compared to schizophrenia. Also, uh, this is also another important point, um, there, is, there is, and that's one of the criteria of schizophrenia, which is negative symptoms. What is negative symptoms? You know, you would say, well, it's the opposite of positive symptoms. So, of course, positive symptoms where it's more florid is hallucinations and delusions. Negative symptoms are, uh, there are four, the four A's that it was described in the classical studies by, by the, you know, the German psychopathologists, uh, psychiatrists, include allogia or difficulty with speaking or with language, abolition, another A, which is difficulty with motivation, doing things, anhedonia or difficulty experiencing pleasure, mainly from social interactions and affective flattening. Those are the four A's that the classic studies talked about negative symptoms. 
People with schizophrenia tend to have those symptoms more pronounced than people with methamphetamine-induced psychosis. It doesn't mean that you might not, you know, you might, this is a dimensional thing, and you might find people having also some negative symptoms who also, who don't seem to have all the criteria for, for schizophrenia. That said, we also, they also found, in this study, they also found that chronic methamphetamine use and schizophrenia might actually have one of these um, Snyder called as the first rank classical symptoms of schizophrenia, which is um, thought insertion, thought interference, and people with uh, chronic methamphetamine use might also suffer from that. However, in my, in my opinion, if I see people having bizarre delusions, if I have uh, people who are having these more far, first rank Schneiderian symptoms, and if I have people who are having more negative symptoms, I will go more into these people have a schizophrenia versus a chronic methamphetamine use. But that's kind of like a very general rule, and it can be really challenging to know what's going on. Thank you for that. I learned so much right there. That is so interesting. Uh, all the time, I've just been going, oh, this is just from the methamphetamine use disorder. And it is so hard to tease that out. Thank you. So I think that just to just for a, a take-home point, I would say that if someone is having cognitive symptoms, you know, in the form of deficits in, but that can be difficult to to get. They they can they normally can only be assessed in neuropsychological tests. But if someone has some cognitive difficulties and if someone has uh, some negative symptoms, that person might be suffering more from schizophrenia. Of course, the gold standard is if, if the person is having symptoms before the onset of the methamphetamine use, of course, that's going to be schizophrenia and not methamphetamine-induced psychosis because this person was having symptoms even before they started using methamphetamine. And normally, schizophrenia tends to happen in your young age, but so the addiction, like we know, that can also be a little difficult to tease out when people, you know, when, when you see patients, if you, you know, they, you, you learn that they were using drugs at the same time that they were already starting to have psychotic symptoms. Like, how the hell am I going to know which came first? There can be other clues if the person is, has a strong family history of um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, which is kind of like the most main ones that have been associated with schizophrenia, then there are more chances that that person had already an underlying psychotic disorder. But other than that, there is really not a lot of uh, gold standard that we have to differentiate which one comes uh, first or not. Those are really fantastic tips that you just gave us of trying to differentiate between the two. That really helps me. Thank you so much for that. Taking a couple more minutes can you tell us a little bit about your research with transmagnetic stimulation with methamphetamine? We have submitted a grant for that, but we are still fighting to get funded. But one of the interesting areas that psychiatry uh, has been living, which is to me very exciting, in the past couple of decades, 15 years, is the area of neuromodulation. So neuromodulation, which is the effects that you have that you can have in the brain with different techniques, is not is not new. You know, it, it was already studied at the beginning of the 20th century, and that's what actually led to the use of ECT. But neuromodulation is, is trying to use different kind of, uh, say, tools to stimulate the brain in a non-pharmacological way. So that's the, the area within neuromodulation that has been better studied is transcranial magnetic stimulation. What, what it does is you use magnetic field, and we know that when the magnetic field is strong enough, you can have, you, you create something that is called an electromagnetic field, and that can and that can make, can influence neurons to depolarize and to have, so, and, and, that's, and that's exciting because then you are having effects in neurons by the use of a magnetic field. We, we have more experience 
experience there thanks to the advances in the area of depression. A major depressive disorder, probably because the incidence is so pervasive compared to other ones, uh, but there has been more research done there. And there is actually, is that uh, FDA approved the use of TMS for the treatment of treatment resistant major depressive disorder? But not only that, there was also recently, um, uh, it was approved for the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's an FDA approval too. And more recently, uh, it has been FDA cleared, which is not the same as FDA approved for the use of tobacco use disorder in combination with nicotine therapy. Okay, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. That is fascinating. It's cleared. It has not been approved yet, but it's in the is there. This is uh, an area where we are going to be uh, hearing more and more. And actually, the effects that TMS had in uh, nicotine addiction was actually pretty high, as as high as uh, any of the major um, medications that we use. Uh, so, so there is uh, that's exciting coming up. One of the advantages of using techniques like this is that they have opportunities to stimulate areas of the brain that might be more difficult to stimulate or to to access with more classical methods like pharmacological or medications. When you take a medication, that medication is going to cross the blood-brain barrier and it's going to distribute through the through the brain, right? Through the whole brain. But maybe you are not interested in uh, stimulating all the brain. And that's actually why many of the side effects that we suffer uh, or that people have when they take psychopharmacological agents come from the from stimulating places where you went that you didn't want to. TMS can offer the advantage of stimulating some some areas that are more specific. Among the different areas, there has been two areas that has gained attention in the area of addiction in general. So one of them is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is one of the nodes of higher cognitive functions. So um, uh, is what they call the executive network um, comes from this from that area. So. One of the things that I wanted to say is that um, when I was a medical student, we were very much into receptors. And that was also coming from the 90s, from the 80s. Every, everything was receptors and psychopharmacology. And now we have, at, then at the same time that, that, than that, we were also talking about areas of the brain. In the most classical Brockman descriptions of some areas of the brain are, which is almost like the classical phrenology studies, that you, you, you have an area of the brain that is dedicated to a function. You have areas of the brain that are very very well, uh, you have an area of the of language uh, that if you stimulate, you can, uh, or if you listen the area, you can actually impair the language involved. You have an area that is more chart of sensory um, or even motor control. So you have different areas of the brain. What we have been learning for the past 20 years is that there is no longer, that, so there are areas we are, we need to talk more about circuits. So there is the connection of different areas combined, which is what it, it, it explains some of our uh, cognitive uh, functions. There the stimulation of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex ha- has an effect in this executive network, which includes more than one. It's not only the executive, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, it just includes other areas that is underactive in people with addiction. In other words, and that, ha- that can explain why they have problems in more higher cognitive to make maybe better decisions and when to get into more cognitive functions. The other area that has been very much studied in TMS is the orbitofrontal cortex or more specifically the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. 
and that's an area that is much involved in salience attribution. So we, we, that's the area that we activate when we want to say this is good, this is not good, when we make decisions. And of course, addiction is ultimately a problem with decisions. That is, a, in this case, inhibition of this area uh, has been proven to have positive effects on craving. So there are a lot of studies out there that when you are exposed to different trigger, different stimuli, you can induce craving on people. So we, we know that the, the, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex it starts to light up, starts to activate when that happens. If you use TMS to inhibit that area, you can have an effect on the craving production in this population. And that might help in the cessation on, on in impairing the associations between stimuli and craving production. So, but there is still a lot of there happening. TMS is being studied in this country and in different areas of the world for the treatment of addictions. I am more interested in methamphetamine use because we don't have any pharmacological agents for that. So we need our different methods, different techniques that we can use to help people. Perhaps, you know, TMS combined with psychosocial treatments could be a very good combination to try to teach the brain think differently and maybe unpair, unpair a lot of associations or maybe develop different connections in the brain uh, that have been debilitated by the use of drugs. For example, the integration of this executive control network with other networks that we know are important for our general daily life functioning. It's been such a challenge. There's been so many kind of medications that have been, we've tried and they've kind of been maybe slightly helpful and just to find a treatment that maybe maybe this will work. That's really exciting. Yeah. How long would the treatment be? How many sessions of TMS and how long is each session? And would they need like maintenance sessions? So those are very good questions. I think that all of the research that is being done uh, out there, all of the protocols are almost being extrapolated from the area of depression just because we already have that data we already know what what works and what produces changes so people are normally using approximately four to six weeks daily sessions and these sessions can be very fast so there is a, a newer method of delivery called tbs or theta theta burst stimulation and that training can be done in less in five minutes pretty fast versus the most classical 30 now there are more protocols that are trying to reduce that but the most classical repetitive tms used to be done in 40 minutes or so, 50 minutes even. And now the TBS can be done in five minutes. But the studies have done, the studies are using daily treatments between four to six weeks. Why is that? I do believe that it's because we need, for this treatment to work, ultimately everything depends on the plasticity of the brain. So on these neuroplastic changes that need to happen in the brain, and that requires time. There was a very recent uh, paper published, I believe in the um, American Journal of Psychiatry. There is a group in Stanford that use an accelerated protocol of TBS doing only for using it only for five days and they using like three or four treatments in the same day to try to you know improve the compliance to try to accelerate the treatment and they found effectiveness on the treatment when it's applied for even only for fights but that has not been replicated but it's there is after research going on but the question is can we extrapolate can we use those results from the area of depression to addictions i don't know do we need to just by a stimulating person or we need to also do we need to use triggers for this treatment to work maybe when you are using the triggers there is class window there are areas of the brain that are active that when 
when you use the treatment is when it works best. We don't know that. For how long For how long do we need to use this treatment? We don't even know that in the area of pressure. So there is a maintenance TMS, but everybody is using different protocols. There is not a unifying protocol yet. Um, some people try to conservatively taper down. So they go to the next week and they, go, they, they get three treatments, then the next week two treatments, then the next week one treatment, kind of like tapering off, down. But then what do you do after that? Uh, what do you do when people recur again? We know that depression is recurrent. We know it tends to recur over and over. Do you start again? Do, do you do you use it indefinitely? We don't know. You know, it, it is very possible that in the same way that we are recommended for people who have three or more episodes of depression, almost a lifetime use of medication for that to prevent recurrences. It might be the case that we are going to need to use these treatments for people who recur more indefinitely. This is still active area of research. That's really interesting. Wow. Well, we're excited to follow along with you. You'll have to come back and join us for another episode because clearly there's just too much to talk about. We we barely even touched the surface, I think, on all of these topics. So that was so fascinating. Do you have anything that you really want our listeners? I mean, I think you really drove home the epidemiology for us, the, the fact that we should continue to treat people and even escalate treatment when we acknowledge and accept the reality that people are using methamphetamine and other stimulants with opioids and even other substances along with those two, instead of abandoning our patients and saying, well, you can't stay in treatment. And then we need to utilize harm reduction strategies to mitigate the risks of their use, which are indeed vast. We didn't even go into that. And you went over the, the CAMSEC scene and vulnerable populations, the devastating rates of overdose deaths in indigenous populations, and then the difference between psychosis related to methamphetamine use versus primary psychotic disorders. That is a whole, that just blew my mind. I was writing so fast. It was like being back in psychiatry in a second year of medical school. school. Like, <laughs> the four A's. <laughs> so, wow. And then the emerging treatment with TMS, that was just really interesting, Javier. Thank you so much. Thank you, Javier. That was the best. We learned so much. The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, Please continue doing this podcast. It's excellent. And I think it might help a lot of people to gain more because we need providers. We need people to get more interest in addiction. You know, uh, we are facing so many problems that we need more people getting interested and different areas of medicine. I think that we need to integrate um, addiction in more and more areas um, around. Hopefully this podcast helps some people to make a decision is really rewarding and it's fantastic. Um, I'm very happy with the work that I do every day, you know. So I think that you just have to try it and, and you, you realize. And also, you know, people are actually very appreciative because these are people that have been hit so hard by their families, by society. They have been abandoned, marginalized, criminalized. They die without treatments. We know what treatments, what kind of treatments work, and still we are not offering them. It is a tragedy of what's happening with addiction. So I think that we really need people to become compassionate. And actually, uh, it will also encourage people to investigate more and to get more interested in harm reduction strategies, because it's actually really satisfying when you do it. If you can help people to, you know, you, you connect better with them you know using harm reduction i have had people opening up more and telling me more how they used and what's how they you have to be you have to be in their own shoes and, and see and understand what they were using in which circumstances how they were using and you know and people are very appreciative it's a highly highly rewarding field that's the message that i wanted to say wow can we use that as our motto that was so beautiful thank you so much we couldn't say thank it better you. thank you until next time 
Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.